the world would be a better place if all CEOs of board meetings of corporations, etc., were conducted in the nude, right? All politics, yeah, yeah. you know. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. This week's guest is Matt Hammond, professor of art here at the University of Montana. Matt's photography is currently on exhibition at the Montana Museum of Art and Culture, and he schools me today on the name of that exhibit, Rathjost, so stay tuned for that. Lots of interesting stuff in this conversation. Matt's work has a specific kind of moodiness. It's beautiful, yet stark, and it's also a bit risky. We talk about Matt's decision process and experience with shooting nudity, and I really appreciate his candor and thinking on this complicated topic. Matt also has some fascinating things to say about truth and the expectations for truth we have for photographs versus other forms of art. I learned a lot in this conversation, and I hope that you do too. So let's get into it right now. Okay, so we're here today with Matt Hammond. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure, thanks so much for the invitation. So we're colleagues. You're over at the College of the Arts and Media. Is that how it's... You've gone through so many rebrandings and renames. Right, College of the Arts and Media, and I'm in the School of Visual and Media Arts now. Yeah, Yeah, sounds like you got it. Yep. (laughs) So your work... You're going to have to help me with the pronunciation. You currently have an exhibit at MMAC, and it's wonderful. I want to, I want to learn all about it. Tell me how you pronounce it. It's an Icelandic word. Um, yeah, it's a uniquely Icelandic word that um, you know I looked up uh, specifically trying to find title um, for the exhibition. And this word, Rathjost, uh Rathjost. Rathjost, yeah. And that's probably even a a bit of a bastardization of the true Icelandic pronunciation, but that's pretty pretty close for um, us folks in English. But uh, the the meaning of the word is um, just enough light to find your way or just enough light to navigate. Yeah, that's a really cool concept. Yeah. We don't have a uh, word for that. We don't. Um, yeah, we have a sentence to describe that phenomenon. They have a word, and it's understandable being that far north that uh, they spend a lot of time with not a lot of uh, yeah. It's light kind of really. a critical concept, I guess. Yeah. yeah. How did you How did you land upon that? Were you, Were you, you Had you done the work and then um, stumbled I, upon uh, researched the concept, or or were you studying the concept and that informed the work? Well, I. Um, on kind of a whim, I applied for a residency in Iceland as okay. part of a sabbatical application. Yeah. So I had kind of um, had some specific projects to do, and I thought I might bolster my application for my first ever sabbatical with some other residencies. I thought, what the heck, Iceland, and was accepted. So then I was there, um, and I was in, when I was invited was for the month of November. I didn't really have an option hmm. to choose uh, the time period, so it simply meant that I was there when there were between four and six hours of light each yeah. day, which is um, something for a photographer to consider. <laughs> but uh, yeah, m- midway through the residency, when I started th- um, feeling like maybe I had um, a body of work that was developing, um, I just, I think I've literally uh, Google searched unique Icelandic words and uh, found that one. And, and that, uh, yeah, just kind of uh, resonated with the mood and tone um, of what's in the exhibition. I'd love to learn kind of more about your how you came into photography. I mean, you said you 
were doing graphic artistry before this mm -hmm. and then you know, established yourself as a professional photographer. Talk about how you entered the field and, and sure. approached that. Um, so I uh, was, um, for a period of time, a bike racer, which we talked a little right, bit yeah. before we Right, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other episode, I think. And, or maybe part of this one. Um, as a bicycle racer, um, dealing quite a bit with sponsorship um, and the use of my own image and just kind of being interested in sort of the graphic production of um, media around the sport. Um, at, at the same time, I was thinking about what I would do after cycling and wasn't really interested in becoming a bike mechanic or something. Mm -hmm. So I started going to school and found uh, graphic design as something that sort of related uh, to a curiosity and some experience that I had um, from the, the side of being the subject of that. Uh, so I pretty much exhausted the graphic design curriculum at Humboldt State University and started freelancing quite sure. a bit. And this is late 90s -ish, um, yeah? Yeah, I, I started, like, as I was racing and typically living at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, I started taking like one or two courses in the winter okay. um, at the University of Colorado. And then when I started uh, living more um, in Humboldt County, uh, where I grew up, I would similarly take one or two courses. So I was on sort of the eight or 10 year plan for, um, undergraduate, graduate ed education, but it was, yeah, roughly the early nineties. Um, yeah, through the nineties, essentially 92 to 96 when I stopped, uh, racing. Yeah. I'm just thinking this is an interesting time to be studying graphic design with kind of the internet coming of age in the late 90s then. Oh, sure. But I mean, I, I think that was early enough that I was actually taught and um, in classes doing like manual paste right, up right. of graphics. You know, we would print them from the computer um, and then cut them out and paste them up. And there was very little like, you know, of the production 100% digital. I remember when a, a graphic designer, an experienced designer came in to talk to her class and share her work. And she had um, a one gigabyte hard drive. Wow. Back it, then? I mean, that has to yeah. be like $10,000 piece of hardware. Yeah. Well, I, I just remember it being about the size of a toaster. <laughs> right. And it had one gigabyte and we were all, you know, blown, yeah. blown away. So, um, yeah, how things have changed because I think in my pocket right now I have 32 gigabytes. At least. The size of a, <laughs> a house key. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just I um, was interested in graphic design and then started freelancing and realized uh, in the the sort of business side, billing uh, people, sort of um, negotiating uh, ideas and content uh, was c sort of a struggle for me. And I, I was interested in having a little more autonomy over my ideas. Okay. And uh, because, of course, graphic design is um, really uh, heavily influenced or engaged with photographic production, I had also made some progress as a photographer, but I just sort of started to see that the fine art side of um, creativity allowed a little more autonomy, and, and that's how I essentially pursued photography more intently and then went to grad school at UW for photography. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, it's it's this interting time where you, you got out of grad school in like 2002, and so yeah. digital media is really starting to flourish. 
the barriers to entry as a professional photographer are, are going down. I mean, pretty much anybody yeah. with, with a decent camera can, can enter the field. And that's great in one sense, but on the other sense, it's, it's a flood of talented people coming into the business. Sure. Yeah. I guess um, on one hand, I might be, I mean, even currently concerned about the, the number of uh, photographers and the competition there, but somehow I've never felt that I was really in a situation where there was too much, at hmm. least, it, you know, it's for the, the venues that I pursued and the subject matter, et cetera, I feel like it's been, it, it, there've been plenty of opportunities. Um, but it's true. I mean, the, the prolific uh, nature of the medium and the, the accessibility in terms of technology and um, distribution via the, the web, it's uh, a very democratic um, medium, right? It's like anybody can do it. And I, I tell this to my students early on in Photo One that the great thing about photography is that in this class, in their first photo class, they can make imagery yeah. that is as good as the best photography being made. Mm-hmm. Um, the the rub is, or the punchline, uh, I think that uh, a noted contemporary photographer, Jeff Wall, likes to um, state is that the difference between the amateur who makes one good photograph and the professional is that the professional can repeat that right, over right, and over right. again. Yeah. yeah, I'm like a broken clock with photography, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right twice a day, maybe, yeah. at best. Okay, so you're, you're breaking into photography you know, I've, I've, I've looked through your work, uh, this current exhibit. There, there's, I don't know how best to describe your style. Maybe it has, you, your work has a very distinct style, and I don't mean that in the narrow sense, but how would you describe your kind of sensibility and your approach to photography? Maybe, well, I think what motivates me. Maybe that's uh, a better question, sorry, the motivation. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this might describe uh, the style. It's interesting to have a, an audio podcast and talking about images. But, I know, um, I know. Because I am a teacher and engaged in academia and um, engage my students in, in a significant amount of conversation about the, the critical theory, right, and critical thinking about how images work, I've been concerned about the, the cliches of beauty, um, and I think, yeah, what motivates me is uh, to make work that has a, a tension between what one would consider typically, you know, beautiful, or it has some of that language. And I think photography is a medium that is inherently beautiful. Um, but then there's there's tension with other um, themes um, or subject matter objects that that aren't uh, necessarily beautiful. And I think that also um, is incorporated into the color palette um, that I choose, uh, either when I'm shooting or in post-production. There's kind of a, a darkness or a melancholy, yeah. maybe moody quality to the Moody's images. a great word to describe yeah. it, yeah. 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 And I'm just thinking about, I mean, you describe your, your work is kind of described on your website as in the space between photojournalism and stage editorial imagery. And so, you know, the portraiture stuff... It seems like you're trying to investigate, you know, a certain type of mood or a range of moodiness. But the landscape stuff, which seems to be most of what the Rathiost exhibition is all about, can you talk a little bit about how you go about making choices with 
what you want to shoot and what you don't want to shoot sure. and what you're trying to get after with a landscape or with a, you know, you have some amazing imagery, imagery of gas stations and the lights above them and things like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I uh, describe myself, in addition to having work that's kind of falls between documentary and sort of staged editorial, I describe myself or aspire to describe myself as a portrait photographer. Okay. So it's a little strange to make that statement and then have people go to uh, Mamak and see what is essentially a landscape exactly. exhibition. Um, but the way that transpired was uh, first going to Iceland, um, planning to make portraits of uh, you know real people doing real things, um, rural uh, Ice- Icelandic people. But then finding that... Uh, the way I need to work requires a certain amount of like intimate um, communication and time and trust with people. And in the course of one month, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to develop a full portfolio of that. And I also found that uh, Icelandic people, while they're very hospitable and and polite and uh, generous, there I perceive this sort of limit in terms of how much they were willing to allow one, you know, into mm. their. Um, personal space and, and their workplace, et cetera. So I just was kind of struggling to make portraits. And then, and when I went over there, I also vowed to not make landscape photographs because, of course, I did a little visceral re- research. What are people photographing in Iceland? And it's this, you know, epic, beautiful. All the stuff, yeah. Yeah, stereotypically beautiful um, landscape. So, you know, I went over there saying, I'm not going to do that. And I remember there are a few other people in this residency that I was in and we introduced our work initially. And, and I even said that to them, I'm not making landscapes. Yeah, you know? yeah. But Doing it's, something different. <clears throat> yeah. But it's what uh, ultimately was available to me. Okay. So I, I just decided to work with it. And then Raphael, the curator at Mamak, saw some stuff that I was um, posting on social media and he invited me to uh, do this exhibition based on that work. So I just had to sort of accept that um, an exhibition is sort of a collaborative um, curation of types of imagery. Mm-hmm. And it became primarily a landscape show. There's, it's also divided into sort of two halves. There are two projects there. Rathjost, um, the title track essentially relates to the Icelandic work. And then it was more my insistence than Raphael's um, that I just presumed people in this community would be interested in the type of work that I was making in the American West. Yeah. So that's how there's another project there. That project um, has more portraits in it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, portraits of individuals, but I sort of edited, the, edited those out so that it uh, was more conversant with the, the Icelandic work. Okay. Yeah. You know, I guess when you look at, you know, that decision to kind of, hey, the people aren't as uh, available to shoot here in Iceland. I got to, I got to shoot the mountains and the streams and the, you know, geothermic features and, and 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 other things. Um, you know, that that seems like maybe a, a pragmatic decision in the moment, but it also, relative to your other work that's features people and portraits, like, kind of expands your range a little bit too. Sure. And, you know, I've always, throughout my effort at being a portrait photographer, I've photographed the landscape um, to give some narrative context, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I think another thing that I do pretty consistently is think about the medium of photography as though I'm writing a novel, right? Okay. 
and it's interesting. I think some of the the curiosity around uh, the arrangement of images, um, the lack of titles, some of the ambiguity in terms of narrative content relates to my belief that because I'm not representing the work as documentary, it allows me this freedom to really pick and choose source images, manipulate them to a certain degree. So you mentioned um, this gas station that's in the show over there. And uh, while it's not described in the text for the show, when I present the work in a lecture or I'm showing my students how I make the work, the original image has the logos from the Icelandic um, petrol company all over the the pumps and whatnot. Okay. And I've carefully gone in uh, and Photoshopped those out. Interesting. There are other images in the exhibition that are composites of uh, five or more locations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think I like that sort of freedom and versatility um, and agility that one can have with the medium if they kind of step away from this perception that uh, photography is a medium of truth and objective observation, right? So I think of it more as though I'm putting together paragraphs or phrases and, and writing, you know, a novel or something. Interesting. I'd never heard it described that way. Is that kind of a a process you learned in, in your graduate studies, or, or is that is that um, a, 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 an approach you cultivated over time, or how? how is, what are the different, I, think, I guess, philosophies of? You're educating me in photography yeah, right now. Obviously, yeah. you could tell by my stump, stumbling through these questions that I don't really know quite how to interrogate this, but right. it's really interesting. Yeah, I think um, it's sort of this a cultural consciousness, and it, it demonstrates sort of the, the the power of the medium and our. Uh, gullibility to a degree that we so often look at a photographic image and understand that it's light reflected off an object and therefore there's truth, right? Sure, whatever that is. And I had um, considered the medium in that way for quite a long time. Even when I started doing this project that's about the American West, it was challenging because I felt like, okay, there needs to be continuity in terms of location and situation, et cetera. And then looking at other contemporary photographers and some other um, references, you know, there's uh, uh, Morgan Ashcombe and Brian Schutmott are some young contemporary photographers, and I started to look at their work more closely and research it, and I realized that, oh, they um, have this this real uh, blatant disregard for what... I had assumed was necessary in terms of continuity, okay. continuity of location and time. And um, so, you know, we take images uh, from one location and put it, you know, or image of one subject and put it next to another subject and assume that there's continuity of time and place, I think, often. Mm-hmm. That's the way we read um, images. And I think that's a typical sort of photojournalistic um, way of using the medium and understandably photojournalism photojournalism needs to adhere to that objective observation yeah for, but, for, for certainly for journalistic the ethic there right um but i uh don't you know describe myself um as a photojournalist really at all i do some work in that way and i edit accordingly but for my personal work and my creative projects, I've realized that, gosh, I could pick and choose imagery from anywhere and any time and, and subjects, people um, from various locations and put them together 
in a way that suggests they have a connection. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll use the analogy of uh, the way a, a writer uh, might have personal experiences that they've lived and are truths, and they write those down and they, you know, uh, bolster up the exciting parts and they sure. diminish the, the boring parts. And what emerges is, you know, a work um, of fiction that has bits of, of truth. Throughout, yeah, historical right? fiction is yeah. very commonplace. Yeah, so I think um, that that's essentially how I've been considering the medium, and I love that that kind of freedom and and uh, agility that one has. Sure. You know, once they're they they think of the the medium in that way. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus, and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. It makes me think of a quote you gave to the Missoulian about this particular exhibit. You said you're searching for something nobler than scientific truth. Mm. That, that seems to resonate in the way you're discuss, You're sort of um, articulating your process. Yeah, sure. And, you know, another point of, of inspiration that I should mention in the Icelandic work um, one of my uh, good friends in town, Jenny Montgomery, the proprietor mm-hmm. of the Montgomery Distillery, who would be a great subject for your podcast. We've exchanged some mails about yeah. having room. <clears throat> good. Got to um, make it happen. She, you and your work is on display there now. Right? Yeah, I have another project over there. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm big in Missoula right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, she, when I was in Iceland, she sent me this short little note um, very generously saying, gosh, I, you know, I appreciate what you're posting on Instagram, and it reminds me of one of my guilty pre- pleasures, which is um, nor- or, uh, Scandinavian crime drama. And that's uh, suddenly kind of uh, inspired me to be looking in this dark landscape um, for uh, that kind of mood or tone. Uh-huh. And subsequently, the images that are chosen for the exhibition there are really inspired by that very you know brief comment um, that Ginny had made. And I started to think, yeah, I can put these images together that create sort of an ambiguous narrative. And I love that, that the ambiguity that allows an entry point for the viewer, right, to sort mm-hmm. of make up and fill in the rest of the, the story. And I think this is very much, again, the way literature works. There's the, you know, the description of the place and the events, and um, some is left in and some is left out. And the interesting stuff is, I think, that the the moments that are left out that we then fill, fill in, in yeah. um, with our own psyche or something. But yeah. So when we're thinking about truth and capturing truth, whether it's the objective truth of the moment, like what's coming into the lens in that particular moment, or some sort of you know, moral or ethical truth that you're trying to communicate, um, your work with, with human subjects, with people, you know, how do you approach that pursuit when you're representing people in your images. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit unorthodox for portrait photographers in that um, I'm like inherently a shy or more introverted person. Mm -hmm. And I think to a degree this might motivate my interest in photographing people because then, you know, I've sort of captured this image that can be studied, right? And um, there are all sorts of problems with that statement in terms of objectification and, and the history of photography doing that. Um, but I simply embrace that aspect of it and, and it being one of my motivations. But 
I think a lot of really effective portrait photographers have this ability to immediately be interacting with somebody with the camera. Okay. And for me, um, and this kind of uh, returns to the, to the struggle I had in Iceland, I need to first develop the sense of rapport and uh, feel like the subject is comfortable with me being in their space before I even pull out the camera. Yeah. So that work that's over at the distillery, um, which is a, a series of photographs that I made about a, a group of primitive skills practitioners that uh, attend the the annual buffalo hunt. Over That's the, the gleaners, right? The gleaners, is the, the, yeah. Is that a term for those folks? Um, they, prefer, they prefer scavengers. Okay. Um, but the, I arrived at that title uh, because there's a, a Malay uh, painting, uh, the French painter... Um, Malay that's titled The Gleaners, and I, I just saw in one of my compositions of people uh, that it looked very similar to the figures in the, the painting titled the same, okay. uh, The Gleaners, and that's where the title came from. But they, some of them have said, we're not gleaners, we're scavengers. But um, anyway, that, so I I've, uh, contacted them and told them I was a photographer and I'd like to hang out, and they invited me. So let's, uh, sorry, I just want to make sure we're clear. So yeah. these are folks that scavenge the remains of an indigenous buffalo hunt. Right. So right. they're um, few of them. But they're non-indigenous generally. Right. Or at least the people in your I'm, – I'm judging based on appearance of, yeah. from your imagery, imagery. But these seem like yeah. non-Native American folks. Most of them are of European descent. There yeah. are a few um, people uh, as the group, the core group, expands and contracts over the years that um, – are uh, tribal members, and okay. they have they have really great uh, relationship with the tribes who are the ones who are hunting. So it's a tribal yeah. hunt, a treaty hunt um, that's being s- sort of um, revisited. And they attend the hunt, assist the tribal hunters um, after uh, the buffalo are on the ground, and what is typically left behind uh, um, in contemporary hunting. Uh, they often scavenge mm-hmm. and, and reuse. Some animal parts are gifted to them by the tribes. One of the problems with that work has been that people assume there's lots of waste um, mm. and that these guys are coming and, and you know cleaning up the master, taking advantage of that. But there's really very little waste that's any different than you know your average deer hunter um, in Montana. But uh, so my approach there is often to you know, gain access to a community and very quickly people will be asking me, you know, I thought you were a photographer, where's your camera? And that's been the case um, with the gleaners. You know, each year I go and for the first day or two, I just hang out and participate, you know, I help sure. clean up, help cook food, you know, whatever. And then uh, once I, I feel like there's this rapport, comfort um, and trust, then uh, I'll start to bring my camera out. And I, I think it's, I'm more comfortable interacting with people the way that I do, which is to observe them. And then when I see something that looks like it would be an engaging um, photograph or the content would have some sort of resonance, I'll ask them to stop or repeat what they were doing and, and kind of work with them in that way. And I think I think that would just be challenging to do if you were like the run and gun kind of photographer. Yeah, if you just coming. sort of dropped in. Yeah. And said, hey, that was interesting. Will you do that again? Like, who the heck is this guy? Yeah. And and I'm kind of uh, uh, 
specific about composition and, and pose and gesture and gaze. So when, as I've developed that rapport with people, then I can sort of direct that a little bit. And that's mm-hmm. where this reference to work that's um, somewhat between uh, documentary f- photography and stage editorial um, is sort of the aesthetic in terms of portraiture that I'm interested in. Yeah, those, the, the, the subjects in your work have a lot of the expressions are very specific. Yeah. It seems like folks are trying to communicate someone through their something through their gaze. Yeah, it's that's a, another interesting point and people the the gleaners who know me now and my daughter who I fo- photograph a lot. You'll hear them say when I have my camera out um don't don't he doesn't like people to smile, don't smile. And that's true. I I direct it's not a people. Not lot of smiles, yeah. Um not to smile and that's simply for the reason that um a smile is what's expected and it's what we learn to perform for the camera. Mm-hmm. And I think it um, removes the, the potential complexity in an image, right? So it, when the, the, the smile goes away and there's a more stern or contemplative um, look in someone's face, there's a, a greater intensity and complexity. I think those types of Im- images are more interesting and resonant than someone consciously performing a smile for the camera. So right. I, I, I do... do a, a, quite a lot to avoid that appearing in in my work. Yeah. You know, you're talking about developing this rapport with your subjects and you know, we we're chatting a little bit about this before we started recording. Um you know, you've investigated you know, there's there's a fair amount of nudity in some of your collections. Mm-hmm. And so one I'm curious sort of how you made the choice to to take that kind of risk professionally cuz I assume it must be some sort of a risk. And then you've lived some of the 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 risk with you know your interaction with social media and some of the, the nudity on your feeds. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, you know, in Seattle, when I was in grad school, I worked for a noted uh, photographer, Jock Sturges, and he's someone whose work is exclusively uh, nude figure work um, that he shoots in a, a naturist community in France. And he's um, I've been subject to various investigations. Uh, about the propriety of his work because often there were children in the oh, work okay. that were new, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, you know, I was raised in a liberal, you know, I think my parents being from San Francisco um, in the 60s, uh, I would describe them as hippies. And so nudity in the body was always kind of a normal and accepted. It's part of the deal. Part of yeah. the deal. So I've never had personal concerns about it. Um, the work that I started to, however, get into trouble for, I guess, I mean, I don't know how much Facebook or Instagram can um, create trouble for me, but that was edited by them, came from another residency that I attended at a naturist community in Canada. Okay. Um, There was an artist residency that someone had recommended to me having seen um, how I was making some other work that involved the nude. And again, on a whim, I applied and then was accepted and then found myself flying to uh, uh, Eastern Canada and thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Can you just briefly describe for the listener that doesn't know what a naturist community is? What is that exactly? So um, there's nudist and naturist, and I only learned this uh, again in this residency, but um, a naturist community is uh, an intentional community that is exclusively uh, nude, right? So... um, it's a it's 
a philosophy of life and a, a way of being. And so the community is a space where nudity is the accepted norm um, and, you know, there are no taboos, et cetera, around it. And essentially every aspect of life in that community is nude. Um, but a nudist, uh, and I think a naturist would describe a nudist as someone who's uh, more opportunistic, right? So, someone like who, exhibitionist in a way? Or? Um, not that extreme, but someone who uh, goes nude when appropriate, but doesn't uh, live it, you know, 24-7. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So yeah. I, this naturist community that I went to, when you checked in, literally right there, you were required to remove your clothes. So yeah, you're like a method photographer at this point. Yeah, at this point. exactly. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, this residency, it was uh, challenging for me, even as liberal as I felt and comfortable as I felt I, I was about nudity. It was co-ed um, in every way, co-ed bathrooms and the the residents, these small cabins that I, we were in. Uh, you know, I arrived there and at night and everyone else was asleep and I, you know, was pointed to a bunk over oh, in the gosh. corner and yeah. said, you know, that's where you're going to sleep. So I, in the morning waking up, I realized, oh, I'm going to meet all these people for the first time and we're all going to be nude. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I was there and I made a series of portraits that are on my website if people are curious about them. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, as a photographer, social media is a great tool, Facebook, Instagram, etc. And I was posting these images, um, which, in my opinion, are really innocent um, figure studies. Yeah, they're beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but, of course, uh, well, I used to assume there must be someone earning minimum wage in <clears throat> India or something to look through Facebook posts and, and delete things that are inappropriate. I guess there are actually uh, AI Bots yeah, or something bots, that can yeah. find. Con- yeah, that's a whole other topic of discussion. Yeah, find nipples and whatnot. So, yeah. I mean, the only trouble that I've gotten in is being banned from Facebook and having my uh, initial Instagram um, account totally wiped out with no recourse or you know ability to argue. Yeah, you're out. Um, yeah. Uh, Which but, I mean, that is a threat to a livelihood as a photographer in many ways. Sure. Or a certain revenue stream. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, once you commit to, you know, a URL and have, you know, built a series of followers, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, it's um, kind of disastrous to have that suddenly go away, which happened to me. And yeah. I've slowly rebuilt. Had to rebuild. Or if Google, um, like, cuts you out of the search results. Right. And that can be devastating, yeah. too. Yeah. So a strategy, if anyone listening wants to post things that are, uh, you know, on the verge of what is acceptable is, is Tumblr. Uh, Tumblr doesn't have that that uh, yet anyway um, policy to eliminate content. They simply um, put a warning for anyone who comes to your site that this might contain adult content. And I mean, this is a, that's a whole other conversation um, that we could have if you want. But uh, adult content and describing uh, work as being prurient for some reason because it involves a degree of nudity is is. Uh, baffling to me. I think it's actually a, a problem with our culture, but yeah. Yeah, I'm tempted to ask you more about that. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I could just, um, this is my uh, cultural, political viewpoint, on yeah. it, but I feel like a lot of the problems in our culture around uh, fetish, right, that lead to misogyny and sexual violence, etc., uh, likely come from the taboos we have around the body and nudity. Oh, sure, like 
Yeah, restrictions and tab- yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I mean, if there's uh, if the body is cloistered away or hidden, then that would uh, fetishize it, right? Mm-hmm. And when you fetishize something, then a behavior that's uh, around our you know, natural sensuality or curiosity um, then uh, is sort of hidden in the psyche. And and I think, yeah, again, that a lot of the the problems in our culture uh, that relate to sexual violence, misogyny, et cetera, um, likely could be traced to those taboos. So in that regard, I, I feel like a responsibility and um, a degree of you know, uh, pride or activism by making work that's uh, openly about the, the body and sort of breaking the, down those taboos. Yeah, that makes sense. Can, can you talk a little bit more about then your experience at the naturalist yeah. Naturist. Naturist. Community, you know, getting there in the dark, kind of your first yeah. experience. Like you meeting these people. You got you to gotta show up nude for yeah. the introductions. Everybody else is nude. Right. Like, how's that? Yeah. It, uh, admittedly, it was it was very challenging. Yeah. Right? I mean, so like, some of these ideas are swimming in your head in the moment. Yeah. And I'm uh, an early riser. And uh, I remember that first morning waking up and laying there in the bed in this uh, um cabin that had, you know, four other beds in it. So I knew there were at least three other strangers, naked strangers with me. And I laid there for a long time, sort of psyching myself up to, you know, wake up and shake hands. Sure. um, But very quickly, uh, surprisingly, and I wish, gosh, I wish more people could have this experience. Um, Very quickly, I had this experience that um, everyone is like similarly vulnerable, right? Yeah. That sort of hierarchy um, of of power uh, across genders and ages goes away super quickly mm-hmm. because everyone is vulnerable. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so that experience is really positive. I mean, I joked uh, quite a bit afterwards, and uh, on occasion in conversations like this, um, suggest that yeah, the world would be a better place if all. CEOs uh, or board meetings of corporations, et cetera, were conducted in the nude, right? All yeah. politics, yeah, yeah. you know, um, all of that was conducted in Probably the nude. a whole heck of a lot less violence and malfeasance in our world. Yeah. I would think. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I, I've, uh, relating to this and some of the controversy around my work has been the fact that I photograph my children. Right, they're right. naturally, I mean, anyone who has kids knows that, um, they're naked a lot of the time. and My daughters, yeah, they're no exception. Yeah, it's like mine as well. She prefers to go without clothes, and it's hard to get clothes onto her um, when you feel it's necessary. But uh, I have work that uh, involves a certain amount of nudity with the rest of my family, and people often question me, gosh, like, I wouldn't be comfortable having images of my child, et cetera, you know, in public and the nude um, and whatnot. I get the same questions, I guess, when work has been published nationally, images of my children, um, even clothed, people question, uh, you know, why I would feel comfortable with that. And again, I feel like my, what's authentic to me is being a photographer and making these images, and I see no difference uh, with someone seeing an image of my child, you know, in The Guardian, um, in in. England versus, you know, seeing her walking down the sidewalk, right? Um, And I mean, of course, there's all, there's potential for, again, fetish and stalking and whatnot, but I don't think 
the fact that I have the images um, published, uh, nude or otherwise, is, is going to really contribute to that. And I guess the other point that is important to me is I don't feel like my imagery or na- nude pictures create the fetish, right? Or I don't think an image of a nude child creates a pedophile. Okay. But if I edit my work because there are pedophiles in the world, mm-hmm. then the pedophile essentially has power over me. Wins, yeah. um, and again, b- because I have this belief that's the taboos that are likely creating the deviant behavior, um, then it's sort of my responsibility to, to not uh, adhere to those taboos. That makes sense. Yeah. How do you view the... How do you view your daughter's agency in, in those choices that you make as an editor, as a photographer? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And, and that, that's often asked in this uh, type of exchange. And I think as a parent, I would suggest that any parent, regardless of their political beliefs, cultural beliefs, religious, et cetera, our responsibility is to teach our values to, mm-hmm. our, to yeah. our kids. So by um, photographing my children um, in whatever state of play they're in, uh, as I've described, it relates to my value, and I think it's my responsibility to teach my values to my children. Right. And, of course, she doesn't have agency um, in the fact that her images are being presented and likely doesn't understand it, though I'm sure if you asked her now, she would say, oh, they're fine and the body's beautiful um, because it's a value that I've taught her. Mm -hmm. My son's only two and a half, so we don't really have that dialogue yet. But um, as her personal uh, beliefs emerge um, and convictions emerge, uh, that agency that she does or doesn't have now will will also sort of morph. And if there's a point at which she says, you know, Dad, I, I don't want those images of me on your website or to be published, et cetera, um, then I would, I'll respect that, you know. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a fair, balanced approach. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of what's next. What's, what's you know, this exhibition's got a couple more weeks to run. It closes out on the 31st, if, if I'm correct, October right. 31st. Yeah, so, so folks, get down and check it out while you can or head over to Montgomery Distillery. Yeah. Um, but what, what, what's sort of next in the hopper? What's capturing your eye at the moment? Yeah, so the, the work um, in the exhibition uh, that's a, about or takes place in the American West. It's from a project called Chinook the Ice Eater. Okay. Um, which is the Chinook winds, sort of this, I'm using it again, kind of in a literary sense or poetic sense as uh, sort of this wind out of the West pushing back against manifest destiny and sort of this um, melancholy um, longing uh, for what is, you know, the West and, uh, kind of both responding to it in a, in a longing sort of way, but also kind of deconstructing the, the strangeness of those, those myths, right, mm-hmm. and tropes of the West. So that's what that project is about. And um, I was, before my sabbatical, I was approached by a publisher um, wanting to make a book. And in my naivete, I started to go down that road of conversation with them about um, publishing, but didn't realize in their business model anyway, how much the photographer assumes financial risk for producing a book. Mm. Um, and 
so some of the financial aspect of it uh, made me kind of put the brakes on and also realizing that you only have uh, one opportunity to make your first book, right? And I feel like um, you want to hit a home run. Absolutely. The first time you do anything yeah. like yeah. that that's that public. So um, I'm continuing to, to work on that project, uh, the Chinook um, project, and hopefully eventually that will be published as a, you know, a monograph of photographs. And then, um, you know, I have some other uh, portrait-based uh, projects that are just so starting to kind of percolate up in terms of um, ideas. And, you know, one of them is about uh, the wealth distribution in our country and I think globally. Um, again, I, I mean, I don't mean to espouse too much of my political belief, but I think one of the ways uh, toward peace worldwide um, would be to have a, a more uh, equality in terms of wealth distribution. So I'm interested in photographing uh, some of the unsung uh, people in our culture that, uh, you know, you see homeless, uh, et cetera, out of work um, in a sort of documentary slash editorial way yeah. that tells their story, um, that uh, presents them in this really reverent uh beautiful quality of photography that I enjoy. Um, but that, yeah, just like gives them, uh, the stage again. So I think that's uh, likely what I'll be working on next. Super. So as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, it's a little sometimes difficult to have this audio conversation in medium when we're, you know, we're talking about imagery. So how can people find you online, learn more about your work, look at the, the look at the imagery, sort of see what we're, what we're yeah. talking about today? Um, it would simply, the probably simplest way is to type into the Google machine, Matt Hammon, H-A-M-O-N, or Matthew Hammon. And uh, typically my website uh, comes right up first. Or, more immediately, just Matt Hammon or MatthewHammon.com uh, leads to my website, where... Um, various personal projects and also some commercial uh, portrait-based work is uh, on view there. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks for kind of helping me through this conversation. I learned a ton and uh, I, I love the work and uh, I'm excited to see more of it. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's pretty self-indulgent to have someone asking questions about uh, research like this. So I, I really appreciate the conversation and I appreciate the listeners out there tuning in. Super. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Okay, hope you enjoyed that one. Check out Matt's work online, or better yet, get yourself down to Mamac or the Montgomery Distillery or both soon to see his work in person. All right, coming up next week, we have a powerful conversation with Matt Gangwall, the founder and owner of Enlightened Lab. Stay tuned for that one next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at a new angle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.